You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Okay, we haven't looked at the incarnation afresh this morning, and from there, looking at the cross work of Christ, now let's pick up where let's pick up where we left off and let's move towards the ascension event itself. And again, I I, I want to point your attention back to uh, the announcement that Jesus makes on the cross, namely the announcement that it's finished. He says it is finished. He breathes his last. And his body is, in, is inspected by the centurion. And you'll recall how that inspection goes. What does the centurion do to see if Jesus is alive or not? He thrusts a spear right into the side of Jesus. Um, that's a cruel and barbaric way to find out if someone's alive or not. But it really is for cruelty and barbarism that Jesus died, isn't it? Um, now, Jesus' dead body is taken from the cross and placed into a tomb. And on the third day, of course, Jesus, he rises from the dead and he makes many appearances. And it's important to point out that it is the same, it's in the same body that Jesus rises in. His resurrection body is the same body as the body that was crucified. It's important that we understand that. Now, are you ready for this? Okay, having just said it's the same body, it's the same body, but it's different. (laughs) I went to seminary with a fellow. got to be really good friends with him. I've been thinking about him a lot lately. Probably why the illustration come up. Um, I've lost track of him, but he was an engineering major, and he he served as a civil... uh, I think he was in mechanical engineering for about 20 years and then received a call to ministry and went to seminary. Of course, I have some engineering training as well, so we, we immediately kind of struck off as friends about the same age, and uh, almost exactly the same age. And uh, he was really bothered by this stuff in theology where you say it's the same but different. You know, if you're designing a bridge... You don't want to hear about some girder. Uh, you know, this girder will work. It's the same, but it's a little bit different, you know. Uh, Dean, you're involved in that kind of work. Do you want to hear that? I don't think you want to hear that. <laughs> okay, it's the same, but it's different. Uh, in, in engineering, that's not something we want to hear. It's the same, but it's different. This would drive Mark absolutely nuts. But what we're studying here is a lot more complicated than a bridge, isn't it? It's the same, but it's different. Let's start with the same. Let's get this point. Let's make this point really clear. Jesus' body is the same body. How do we know that? How can we we confidently assert that? Well, during one of Jesus' appearances, Jesus approaches Thomas. And you'll recall that Thomas Thomas was stubborn to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If you'll turn to John chapter 20, uh, John chapter 20, You know, Thomas, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, 
I will never believe. And if you look at John chapter 20 and verse 26, there we read, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And a little bit later, I'm going to hopefully explain how Jesus can enter a room and the doors be locked. I think that'll become a little bit clear here. At least my own personal take on it will be. But anyway, Jesus stood among them. He said, peace with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus' body is the same body. He's got the the pierced hands, the pierced side. It's the same body that the Romans nailed to the cross. It's the same body that wore the crown of thorns. It's the same body that the centurion plunged the spear into the side. It's the same body, but it's different. It's the same, but it's different. How is it different? It's different in that it's a glorified body. It's different in that it's a glorified body. And most of what we know about the glorified body comes from 1 Corinthians 15, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 35 of that chapter, Paul picks up a common question. It was a common question in the first century, and it's a common question today. In verse 35, Paul asks, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's a pretty practical question, isn't it? Um, These thoughts certainly hit us. They hit us when we're in the funeral parlor. It's there where we're confronted with the reality of death. We wonder about our loved ones. Will they be raised? What kind of body will they be raised in? Will we recognize them? You know, that's a common question. I have been asked those questions, you know, over the years. People have asked me those questions. Hey, are we going to recognize each other in heaven? You know, that's a question that people will ask in the funeral home, you know, in between tears or even while they're crying. Uh, Paul begins to answer this with an illustration from the garden or from the farmer's field. If you look at verse 36, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, everyone in Paul's audience understood that when seeds were put into moist, fertile soil, they'd begin to decay and they'd begin to germinate and then a plant would be produced. And in verse 37, he says, what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Now, I, I want to take some time to develop this because on the surface of this, it, it might look like this verse is suggesting that it's not our bodies that will be raised. Um, that's not what Paul means here. Let's be certain for that. It's not what he means. In my backyard, there are two really beautiful maple trees. They're kind of off to the side. As you've come for bonfires, you may have never really even noticed them, but they're really straight for maple trees. You know, maple trees usually kind of branch off. These ones are like straight as an arrow. I've watched those little trees. One day when I was mowing my yard, I saw just two little trees. They just sticking their heads up through the ground, you know. And um, I, I mowed around them. I thought, let's see what happens. I 
mowed around them. And um, over the years, I've, I've watched them grow. And now they're, I don't know how high they are. They're, uh, oh, they're probably this big around now, you know, and they're just straight, beautiful trees. And I realize they don't have heads, by the way. I mean, when I say they stuck their heads up out of the ground, you know what I mean by that. They, they didn't, they're, they're beautiful trees. They don't have heads. Um, that's a figure of speech. Okay. But what happened? Well, there's a maple tree that's in the, that's in the yard. It's, it's dying. Um, seeds come off of it. Apparently, two of those seeds wandered. You know, the wind blew them over into the corner of the yard. And those seeds, um, they once were alive, but they died. And as they found their way uh, into some soil that could support them, new life took place. They were buried. They began to rot. Two seeds germinated. Two trees were produced. And Paul is not saying that we're raised in a different body here. Paul is pointing out the fact that death comes first. He's pointing out the fact that death comes first. Those seeds die. Uh, they're, they're severed from the life of the tree, like a branch would be severed from the life of the tree if the branch comes off the tree. Verse 38, Paul continues, he says, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now here, Paul is referring to the power of God to give life to the dead. Okay, If you look at verse 39 and onward, he writes, For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly, okay, the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Okay. Paul can sometimes be hard to read, right? You know, sometimes you've got to kind of stand back and begin to sort out what he's saying. Let's do that. The glory of the earthly body, he says, differs from the glory of the heavenly. How? Look at verse 42. The earthly is perishable. It's the nature of our current bodies, they're perishable. Uh, Jesus' earthly body was perishable. Now, how do we know that? Well, he died on the cross. He died. Okay. Continuing in verse 42, the heavenly body is imperishable. Okay, Christ's glorified body is incapable of death. Hold on to that. We're going to build on that. Verse 43, the earthly body is sown in dishonor and weakness. Christ dies in humiliation, doesn't he? In fact, we can think about the work of Christ in, in two phases. His humiliation and his exaltation. He dies on the cross in terms of his humiliation. One of the ways that you can understand the words, it is finished, is to, if you think this way, his humiliation is finished. It's nearly finished. It's not completely finished, but it's nearly finished because he's going to go into the, into the grave. Okay, that's, that's, that's really properly belonging to his humiliation. His exaltation begins as he is raised. 
But Jesus couldn't have died a more dishonoring death than he died. He hung naked in front of everyone on a cross. The cross was reserved for the most worst of criminals. So the earthly body is sown in dishonor and weakness. Continuing in verse 43, the heavenly body is raised in glory and power. So it's sown in dishonor and weakness, raised in glory and power. Verse 42, it's sown a natural, or 44, I'm sorry, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that the body is without, that, that, that there's some kind of just purely spiritual being here without a body, a non-corporal body, if you will. Don't misunderstand that. What's meant by here, it's a real physical body, but it's a body that's thoroughly filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that Paul's referring to our bodies. We'll be thoroughly filled with the Holy Spirit on the resurrection. Believers in Christ will be. Now, I don't want to suggest for a minute that Jesus, in some measure, is filled further upon His resurrection than He was during His uh, earthly uh, life here. Jesus is, John chapter 3, verse 34, makes it clear that Jesus was filled without measure. Okay. But the spiritual body is a body that is filled uh, with the Holy Spirit. So Christ is raised in the same body, but it's different. It's the same body, but it's glorified. Now, with that, let's continue. Let's look at another of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. If you turn to Luke 24 with me. Luke 24, and look at verses 44 through 53. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and start reading. Luke 24, 44. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Uh, Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, and here is the ascension event, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, with these words, Luke actually concludes volume one of his work. Does everybody know what I mean by that? He concludes volume one of his work. Um, in some respects, having John's gospel between Luke and Acts kind of screwed, you know, kind of messes us up a little bit because Luke's gospel is volume one, Acts is volume two. It, 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 having the same author, if you turn to Acts chapter one here, I'll show you uh, what I'm talking about. Acts chapter one. And we're going to be studying Acts here very shortly on Wednesday nights. Acts chapter one. Verse 1, see the words in the first book. Okay, in the first book, O Theophilus. And of course, Luke begins by writing to Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So in the first book, that's in Luke. Okay, we now turn to the second book, Acts. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, 
To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, you see, Luke is picking up right where he left off. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has been making appearances over the course of 40 days. He presented himself alive by many proofs, verse 3. And one of which, one of these we looked at in regards to Thomas. Uh, Jesus orders his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And furthermore, Luke is expanding here. He's expanding in Luke 24. Uh, In Luke 24, he simply says, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. But in Acts, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And of course, the the beginning chapters of of Acts, you know, uh, flesh what that's all about, uh, namely in Acts chapter 2. But in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, continuing on, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority or by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, what happened? Jesus is lifted up. We're told that a cloud took him. And I would submit that this is often where we check out, isn't it? We kind of check out, you know? Um, Well, uh, in fact, I mean, some people check out with the crucifixion, with the words, it is finished. And we don't want to do that. That's incomplete. You know, as we've seen, okay, our sin debt's paid on the cross. Jesus says it's finished. His agony has reached its conclusion. God's justice is satisfied. Yes, all of this. Um, But we don't want to stop there. Jesus rose from the grave. Salvation's more about, it's, it's more than simply having our sin debt taken care of. Salvation is about having new life. And when Jesus is raised from the grave into new life, We're told in Romans 6 and other places in the Scriptures, Colossians, that we're also raised with Him. That the believer has new life. Uh, But we we don't want to stop there either. Uh, I mean, the resurrection is huge. I mean, the resurrection authenticates all of this. You know, in the spring when we were talking about the Bible and its reliability and its its authority and its sufficiency, you recall that... um, you know, when asked, when I am personally asked, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible is, is reliable? Why do you believe it is uh, authoritative? And why do you believe it's sufficient? I can answer that question with one single word. Does anybody remember what the word is? It's the word resurrection. It's the word resurrection because in that, in that event, Jesus is completely vindicated. Everything that Jesus has said, taught, uh, taught and and done is all vindicated, isn't it? He's alive, as we just got done singing a a little bit ago. He's alive. So the resurrection gives me new life to believe with. The resurrection validates all of Jesus' claims, and we're tempted to stop right there. We follow Jesus off to Bethany. He's lifted up. We go on our happy way, uh, not giving much thought to where Jesus is, what he is doing, or why he's left. 
when we do that, we miss an enormous benefit that's right here before us. We don't want to stop at the crucifixion. Some will say, no, no, go to the resurrection. But oftentimes, the resurrection is where we stop. And what I want to say is, no, let's not stop at the resurrection. Let's go to the ascension. Let's go to the ascension. Okay, let's go to the ascension. And for that, we're going to turn to a place where you probably, I mean, if I said, okay, we're going to go to the ascension, where in the Bible should we turn? It's probably one of the most least places you would think. Exodus. Turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. You think, we're thinking about the ascension, Rick. You're going to the Old Testament. Yes, we're going to Exodus 19. Israel's just been delivered out of Egypt and God has assembled them in the desert. Exodus 19, verse 1, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they had camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, here we see Moses going up to the Lord to meet him on the mountain. And the Lord communicates to his people via Moses. Sound simple enough? We look down to verse 12. There the Lord gives this warning. He says, You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether man or or beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses goes up on the mountain, and the Lord descends, and as he, as he does, there's thunder, there's flashes, there's lightning, there's smoke, there's a sound of a trumpet. And in verse 19, the people see it and they tremble. And they say, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. These are their words to Moses. Moses, you speak to us. It's a frightening scene for the people as they're gathered around, as they're seeing this. Now, with that in mind, turn to chapter 24, Exodus 24. Okay, then he, that is God, okay, said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now look at verse 2. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now if you skip down to verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. 
The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God, or people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, during this time, Moses gets the plan for the building of the tabernacle. If you've read Exodus, you know, you start getting these plans, you know, of the tabernacle, and you, you read through all those detailed plans. And um, what is Moses doing? Well, he's to build this tabernacle based on a pattern that he sees when he's on the mountain. It's to be built, it's, it's, it's not willy-nilly that, he, that they build this thing. Uh, Moses is given a vision of a heavenly tabernacle, and they're to build a pattern of that, um, a pattern of a heavenly sanctuary. The tabernacle is to be a, a copy. Now, what's going on here is that Moses is going between Israel and God as a mediator. Even the people themselves, they said, listen, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. So Moses is going between God and between the people as a mediator. Moses ascends into a high mountain that's covered by what? Cloud. And that cloud is nothing other than the glory of Almighty God, isn't it? Now, Moses is to bring back plans to build a tabernacle, which is a copy of the tabernacle he saw in heaven. Moses is going to come back. He's going to return with these plans. Moses will introduce a sacrificial system that will be offered to the Lord. Thousands of animals will be sacrificed on the altar that Moses will construct. And if you turn to Exodus 28, there's one, there's one piece that I'd like, you to, I'd like you to just hang on to, especially for the third lecture. In Exodus 28, verse 15, Moses is instructed to make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work in the style of the ephod you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen you shall make it. We read those words and we wonder, what could that possibly have to do with us? Oh my goodness, we're going to see what that has to do with us here in just the next hour. Verse 21. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel, and they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes of Israel. And the priest is to wear this as he approaches the presence of the Lord. In other words, the priest is to approach the Lord bearing the names of the people. Right? Okay. Well, with all that in mind, let's go to, back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, if you look at, start with verse 6. When they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Sound familiar? 
Wait a second, I think Moses, didn't Moses? Moses ascended a mountain and into a cloud, didn't he? And Moses did this because he was summoned by the Lord on top of the mountain. Jesus ascends into the sky. Okay? And, and we're told that he is taken up, right? He is taken up. He is lifted up and taken into a cloud. Moses received instructions to build a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus was received into the heavenly sanctuary. And for the first time in all of eternity, I mean, listen to this. For the first time in all eternity, there is a man in heaven. There's a man in heaven. He is a man with a real human body. He's a man with a reasonable soul. He is in heaven and he is in the presence of God. In other words, flesh and blood is in the presence of Almighty God. If you turn to Psalm 24, Psalm 24 actually celebrates this. Psalm 24. After establishing the earth to be the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the psalmist asks a question in verse 3 of Psalm 24. It asks this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Psalm 24, verses 4 to 6 answer, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Okay, now in one sense, all who are in Christ could be described at least positionally, as those who have clean hands and a pure heart, as those who do not lift up uh, our soul to what is false or who does not swear deceitfully, but actually or even properly, only Jesus could be described this way. Only Jesus could be described this way. So the psalm... Yes, and positionally speaking, it could be pointing to us, for sure, positionally, if we're in Christ Jesus, because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we could be said to be of clean hands and a pure heart because of the record that's given to us, a record that is Jesus. But properly speaking, properly speaking, only Jesus can be described this way. No one else. Remember, we're looking for a perfect man. Psalm 24 describes a perfect man. Where is the perfect man? Find one. We need one, only one. Where is he? Right here. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his place? Okay. The answer, Jesus. In January of 1738, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on Psalm 24. And oh my goodness, what a sermon. What a sermon. In that sermon, Edward said that verse 7 is the voice of the Father. Look at verse 7. 
He says this is the voice of the Father speaking that says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It's the voice of the Father that says this. And we ask, the psalm asks, who is this king of glory? It's important that we understand that the occupants of heaven who ask that question are not asking this question because they have no knowledge of who this person is. Okay, they're asking this question out of sheer adoration and worship. They're not asking this question because they're trying to determine who it is. They're asking this question because they're gazing at him in adoration and worship. And they say it in a second time, which means it's being emphasized, isn't it? Who is, verse 8, who is this King of glory? Verse 10, who is this King of glory? Verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's the one who was victorious over Satan on the cross. He was even victorious over us in our stubborn unbelief on the cross. He defeats the enemies of souls. Verse 10, He's the Lord of hosts. He's the King of glory. Listen to what Edwards writes commenting on this. He writes, quote, For though He was truly man and ascended in His human form, yet when He approached heaven's gates, God commanded and proclaimed to the gates that they should lift up their heads as it were to acknowledge Him to be the owner of heaven. The owner of heaven and to receive Him as King of heaven. And when did heaven receive Jesus? It's upon His glorious ascension. Jesus is received into the heavenly sanctuary and for the first time in all eternity, the first time in all eternity, this has never happened prior to this, first time in all eternity, there is a human man in the presence of God in heaven. That's what's going on here. A man with a real human body, a man with a reasonable soul, he is in heaven, he's in the presence of God. In other words, flesh and blood, Hold your hands. Put your hands together. Squeeze them. It's in heaven. A real body. A reasonable soul in the presence of God. Let's take another break.